Shut up and sit down. Friends, welcome to the next episode of World in Rokugan. Uh, this is a sixth ring pro- uh, production. My name is Alex Jacobs, and with me is my wonderful, amazing. Hey, wait a minute! You're not Ian. Nope, Hi, I am everybody. not Ian. So please introduce yourself to everybody. Hello, I'm David Gordon Brash, also known as David Gordon, also known as Dave of the Five Rings. Uh, I'm a news blogger who's been covering Legend of the Five Rings for the past six years. Uh, having been a member of the community since the, oh God, since 1997, I think was when I first started making posts about Legend of the Five Rings. So hi. Welcome. We're glad to have you. To everyone who misses Ian, he is caught in the hurricane uh, this weekend. He is fine, just couldn't uh, join us so he's ta- as he's taking care of his family. And Dave was kind enough to jump in for what's going to be a great episode. Uh, before we get into that episode, uh, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You said you've been playing L5R for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started with Legend of the Five Rings, the trading card game, in 1997. Uh, started with the Shadowlands expansion set. Uh, my very first starter was a the Naga Stronghold, our good old Heart of the Shinnaman, not Heart of the Shinnaman Forest, Ancient Temples of the Naga. There we go. Ancient Temples of the Naga. And I was playing it, and this would date me back in high school, so I am kind of old. But uh, yeah, and I've stuck with it by and large for the last 23 years now. And (laughs) that's impressive. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. It's uh, I've seen the game through a lot. The game's seen me through a lot, and uh, yeah. While I haven't always been active in the competitive play of the card game aspect, um, I have been active in the RPG since it's basically since the very first released a first edition, and I've played. I can say that I have played and GM'd every single edition of the RPG, up to up to and including the new FFG edition. Exactly. Up to and including the new FFG edition. So, no pressure, but uh, do you have a favorite version of the RPG? So, I definitely think uh, it would be a tie between the fourth edition, so the last edition released by um, Alderac Entertainment Group, uh, and fifth edition by FFG. Um, I will say that there was an interesting level of accessibility to the Wizards of the Coast D20 version. I know a bunch of people who got into L5R through that, so I'm not going to discount that for accessibility purposes, but I definitely think both the 4th edition version of AEG as well as the latest edition, I I don't want to even call it 5th edition, because it's such a radical difference. It doesn't feel like a new edition, it feels like a whole new game. Yeah, 5th version, but maybe not 5th edition. Exactly. In all honesty, the the AEG RPG that the fourth edition was the fourth edition of an L5R RPG. This is a new version of the L5R RPG, similar to how the D20 version under Wizards of the Coast was a new version of the Roku, of L5R as an RPG. 
Uh, as someone whose introduction was through that D20 version, um, I remember reading the book something, okay, this is a neat little skin on D&D. And then years later, playing my first version with the AG system, and this feels completely different. System mechanics are in RPGs are an amazing storytelling device, and a lot of people sort of overlook that. And the difference between the D10 rolling keep system and the D20 target number system is radically different. It's an entirely different approach to the game. Well, and then we have the narrative system now. Which is, again, an entirely new approach to the game. And, yeah, again, I think that those two are my favorite, but I'm not going to discount the, the, the D20 version. It was good at its, at the time that it was released. Now, before we get too much into uh, our discussion for today, I just want to go a little bit more with some of your backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, in the card game, I know that you've made some innovations, uh, which... We, while we're focused on the RPG, I do think it's worth mentioning. Can you talk a little bit about the Daimyo format that you've been working on? Absolutely. So Daimyo format, Legend of the Five Rings card game, LCG, is basically just a style of deck building and play. It still uses, I would honestly say, 99% of the same rules as the LCG. I'm just making it so slightly different to try to push a more casual, faster pace engaging environment um one of the downsides to the lcg is that it's so intensely competitive and the games take so long and they're so intense that having the ability to do a bit more random bit more casual is good so it was basically for those who are not aware of the daimyo format um daimyo format uses um 30 card dynasty deck 30 card conflict deck or 30 to 35 um, every card's singleton, so you can only run one copy of each card. There's no restricted list, no locked-in rolls, uh, and you have a daimyo, which is a unique character, which must have either the champion, the daimyo, or elemental master trait, and they're out of play. You can't run copies of them in your deck by name, so if you have the new Esawa Tadaka, you can't run the old Esawa Tadaka in your dynasty deck. And your stronghold, everyone has the same stronghold. Uh, it has the faction trait of your daimyo. If your daimyo is neutral, then it has a faction trait of your choice. And all your 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 stronghold does is it's uh, it's ten fate per turn, nine honor, um, seven influence, and you just bow your bow your stronghold to put your daimyo into play from out of game. When your daimyo would leave play for any reason, it goes to out of game. So it's kind of like Commander format and Magic, but rather than being a more casual, slower game, which is what Commander is, uh, this is a more casual, faster game. I've only gotten to a little bit of it, but the reason I wanted to bring it up on the RPG podcast is I've had a lot of my RPG friends who are curious about the game, but the buy-in for the the three core sets Mm. is pretty high. Uh, Not to mention all the supplements. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's a very intense experience, and I think if you're curious about trying the game, the Daimyo format is a great way to experience a lot of what the card game has to offer without having to go full headfirst in and hope that you end up liking it. I actually think when I wrote the Daimyo Rules, I have in the Daimyo Rules a single-core box set version of it, where you still, it's, it's again, it's Daimyo, but you split all the conflict cards, and you each choose two clans, 
and you just build your conflict a dynasty card deck out of one one copy of each uh, neutral card and then these two clans okay. and you ha- and you can choose either uh, champion okay well we, uh, I don't want to get too too far off topic there but let's def- yep. we'll definitely try and put a link up to that in the show notes uh, so I do recommend if you've been curious about the card game check it out but let's just go on a little bit to the RPG and some more of your background there. I'm oh, active yeah. in both the Heroes of Rokugan uh, mm-hmm. campaign, and you've been part of the Winter Courts. Can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about those? So, I am somebody. Oh, I live in I live in New England, so I happen to be living in the land of the LARP, um, like one of the LARPing capitals of the world. So I've been LARPing. 15, almost 15, 16 years. So my first involvement with Heroes of Rokugan, interestingly enough, came from going at Gen Con 2009, going flip, 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 there's an L5R LARP. I want in on that. Um, And just showed up and saw a bunch of people really having fun LARPing Legend of the Five Rings. uh, And that was, I think, yeah, if it was 2009, they'd be able to tell you basically what what stage, but that was Heroes of Rokugan 3, I'm fairly certain. Uh, and I just walked around as, uh, as an Akoma bard, because why not? When, when, you're, when you're comfortable being social and doing public speaking, play an Akoma bard. Uh, and I still remember that basically because I had a, they gave me like my ability, which was you can do a public speak praising this one person and it boosted their status for the rest of the LARP. And I was like, so what do I have to do to do this? They're like, oh, just, you know, turn it into the staff and tell them that you're using it. And I was like, oh, so I have to give a public speak. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I do the, may I have the attention of the court and just, proceeded to do a speech when I was told to use it. I think I actually remember that. <laughs> I was praising the, the Atoma who had been married into the Tortoise clan. Oh, yeah, that was uh, Don... Uh, I, uh, oh, my goodness name. Uh, that, another one of our friends. Uh, but he, he had the, uh, the facial scars. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, uh, and... Yeah, I... I, I I'm impressed that somebody else remembers that. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> it, well, the, I remember the system was came with Peter Smiley, who was one of our fir- our first guests on the on the show, because <laughs> uh, Peter was always a longtime uh, devoted courtier player. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems with the game was courtiers usually didn't get to use their mechanics the same way the Bushi and Shugenja did. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to say, figure out how do you let courtiers have the same fun to have mechanics without it turning into mind control and just dominating the yeah. game. That's always been the challenge of any form of social combat. Yeah. But he, he was he was just delighted that uh, that people were taking that system and really just hamming it up and making the game come alive. That was the best part. Yeah. I, I'm a big ham on some levels. And we're already a little bit short on time, but uh, can you yep. tell us briefly about your experience with the Winter Courts? Oh, I was involved with both Winter Court 4 and Winter Court 5. Uh, the, the fan sequel that happened during the the interim between the sales. Um, in Winter Court 4, though, I was the player of Susumu Naishi. Um, I wound up being uh, the second... Real fast, can you summarize what the Winter Court is for people that might be new to the game and weren't active back then? 
So the Winter Court was a play-by-post RPG game run by Alderac Entertainment Group, uh, and it was in a semi-canon state. So the way I like to think about it is sort of guided canon. They could take your actions and canonize them if they wished, and you were playing canon characters – but not a hundred and ten percent of what not a hundred percent of what happened was canon, basically. Mm-hmm. And it was an official sponsored role playing game that had an impact on the interactive storyline because we were literally earning points at court to support either a Weko Seiken or a Weko Shibatsu. Very cool. Right. Um, as the second in command of the spider, we were really, really, really pro Shibatsu. <laughs> But remember, uh, back in the old game, one of the frustrations a lot of the RPG players had was there were all these story decisions, and mm. the card players could make them, and this is how do you integrate the RPG side of things? Because with the RPG, we're all telling our own story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. And I definitely think towards the end of the AEG, they had figured out how to do that. And um, F- where FFG has picked up with uh, Wedding at Kiyotai Castle, um, I'm waiting for that fiction still. Fingers crossed that we're actually going to see a fiction resolving what happened at Wedding at Kiyotai Castle and the outcome of that. Well, that's, a, that's a great segue into our discussion on today's topic. And it, this was this was actually your suggestion. I really loved it. <laughs> and the idea was how not to be locked into canon storyline mm-hmm. story or timeline and why it is necessary. Mm-hmm. So we, we all know that anyone who's really had a chance to look even really through, through an L5R book realizes there's this huge history of the Empire and then you get into the online fictions and there's this amazing storyline going on and a lot of times that's what we fall in love with. We, we love that story. Mm-hmm. But role-playing games are not short stories. They're not novels. They're not films. <laughs> they're their own form of literature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you embrace that storyline without letting it dominate the game? Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the, the massive lore of this game is in sometimes the most daunting aspect. I mean, I, oh, as an not active... at all. Do, do you know how you teach someone the uh, L5R lore very quickly? Oh? You samurize it. <laughs> but, um, thank you to the three people that laughed about that. Well, I guess, uh, thank you to the two other people who made it so I'm not alone. Um, the, again, the, the, the lore is so deep and so rich and the number of times I've seen Reddit threads, Facebook posts, um, threads in the RPG communities of how 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 L5R this game is so big. And it comes back to time and time and time and time again. Make it your own. Don't be don't don't hold yourself to the canon storyline. Make it your own. And I think, again, 4th Edition did this with the Rokugan Yorway and supported it further with the Imperial History books, which I really loved. I think is still to this day, like, the Imperial Histories and the Atlas of Rokugan are the two, are the three, technically, because there's two Imperial Histories, are the three books that every single, no matter what version of L5R you're running, get those three books. I'd, I'd agree with that, though I would also add on the great clans to that. Not so much for the factual information of the clans, but the discussion of themes. Yes, like if yes. You, if you want to know how to run a courtly romance, you read the great chapter of that book. Mm-hmm. If you want to know how to run a military campaign, you read the lion chapter. Mm-hmm. But And again, those are useful, but if you wanted to do something completely different with your great clans... 
like and again like alternate timelines um different like because a world where togashi won the champ uh, the tournament of the kami is going to be radically different than the one that Hanti won or the one that Okoto won. I mean, imagine that. Imagine Okoto cuts down Hanti in the final round. How different would that be? Well, the first thing that goes to my mind is when you say cut down, I take that very literally. And oh, well, all of a sudden you have an empire that's uh, founded on, on fratricide. It's a much more ruthless empire. The way Hanti won was he made Okoto stop his healing blow. Oh, I didn't like, that's that's in the canon. That's in several times mentioned in like the canon thing is, Hanti positioned his blade so he shone the light in the eyes of Akoto, and Akoto realized that he was killing his brother, and that made Akoto stop and bow to Hanti. So Hanti won literally again. Hanti won through basically shaming his own brother out of fratricide. What if, what if Taturi just cut him down anyways? Or not to turn. What okay. if Okoto just? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, my brain Still just kind of went different. to. Well, it's a. It, it was referred to in. Um, there was like a reference, I think, in the current fiction of like Daturi getting blinded and said he closed his eyes, and that's how he was able to win the the Emerald Championship because he didn't get blinded because he thought through it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, but that, no, that, imagine that, if Okoto had killed Haunty. So I. I, I see a lot of games that will start with everything is canon up to the first moment of game. Yeah, which and is good. It, it's a starting point. Um, I find a lot of times, though, those games, even though the players are making their own history, they get weighted down on the expectations of everything that happens here is new, but it's still based on almost a thousand years of of history. And you get you get the not just the GMs, you get the players that'll say. Oh, we're at cute and uh, cute and doji. I'm going to go to the garden uh, to this story gardens. What do you mean you don't know about the story gardens? And there will be all these things that uh, that just come assumptions that come from it. The GMs will assume the players know things, or the players will read into things the GMs didn't intend. And it puts a lot of pressure on people to, and that, that's just the facts of of the setting, not even getting into the histories. And, and again, that can be one of the issues of, especially when a player knows more than a GM and uses and basically is the pushy player at the table. Um, it can be very it can be very damaging to the mutual story, the shared burden of telling the world. But on the same side, the reason a lot of us fall in love with this world is because of those details. Is because that there's this village two days south of uh, of Kyudo Doji, which is filled with basically women su- su- seeking a husband, and like that's just in the setting. And some people know about that, and they'll be like, "Oh, we have an adventure at Kyudo Doji. I know where I'm going." And they try to derail things. That's bad. Whereas somebody goes, "This is where I come from. This is where I grew up. That's good." And then knowing that balance is important. I think part of the GM's responsibility then is to give players who know about that information a chance to share it, mm-hmm. but still emphasize the players where things are going in the setting. Yeah. And and having a GM who, and also as a GM, never lecture. If, a, if they have questions, answer them, but always be willing to let your players come up with their own answers. Are you familiar with... Um, Ben Riggs' uh, plot points uh, podcast and uh, his book Encounter Theory. 
I, I haven't read it, but I've heard of it. It's a, it's fantastic. I, I just went I went to one of his lectures at Gen Con or seminars at Gen Con. It was amazing, and now just devouring the podcast. But one of the, one of his big points, the whole premise of encounter theory, is background information is good and necessary. But in a game, the only thing that really matters is what the players experience. And exactly. so every part of the game should be answering the question of what do the players do with this? Are they interacting with an NPC? Are they interacting with the environment? Is it prompting interplayer interaction? And if the answer is no, then you need then you need to re- change focus back because the players are not there to be told the story; they're there to tell their own stories. One that is one of the single greatest pieces of advice about GMing ever, and and again in a. It's something that is so necessary in a lore-rich world like Rokugan. So if you were to... Let's go back to that village of uh, unmarried women, which uh, yes. I, I remember reading that in Atlas. That was my fa- favorite things. And during it, during Heroes of Rokugan um, module, that didn't actually go to that place, but was set nearby it. Yeah. We, it, we basically just kind of mentioned it on the tourist stop. I think one of the players did a little detour, and because we had the Atlas handy, we were able to do the detour and then get back to the module. It didn't affect anything, but the player got the yeah. two bits of fun. Uh, but what is a way you would integrate that into a game that keeps the focus on the players without penalizing someone who doesn't know about that? Well, I actually, I think that you straight up gave a perfect example. Um, if a player cares about that, have it be a detour. Um, if it's relevant to your story, have it be a setting and have it be a and if your players are like what do you mean about this and have it have a play about it like ha- have that be something that occurs of this of these two things and let your players ask the questions and make create foster that environment where questions are welcome and it, again and it's experiential and it's relevant have the fact that this is a play written about this village be secret to like it actually reveals that the the reason why perhaps the villain that they're dealing with at this given encounter their motivation is tied to the fact that they're a jilted lover that they were effectively somebody broke a betrothal with them and then they hired this troop because this story speaks to them things like that like and make the make the details relevant but accessible and also everything you said tied it back to the player's experience exactly right. well we're about uh that's that is our time for uh, discussion but we're gonna have tyler on in a little bit so we can talk with him more about lore canon how to utilize it mm-hmm. so we're gonna take a break and we'll be back in a few minutes thank you Rokugan, and stay classy Welcome back, everyone. And uh, David and Alex are still here. And now joining us is Tyler Parrott. Say hello, Tyler. Who is that? I think you made him up. Surely he is a lie. Hello. Hi. So for those of us who uh, may not be familiar with you, and I have no idea how those people found the podcast, but we're glad to have you, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, So I'm Tyler Parrott. I am the Legend of the Five Rings LCG developer. Um, so I make the card game, and also I'm the story group coordinator, so I work with uh, everyone else who works on L5R to make sure we're going in the same direction so, and making cool stuff. 
So how do you coordinate between the card game and the RPG? Uh, well, mostly one of us has a cool idea, and then we run into the other person's room and say, hey, I have this cool idea, and they're like, that's a cool idea, and then we do it. Um, <laughs> uh, more officially speaking, um, we meet semi-regularly, and basically, like, and mostly we just keep each other informed as to what we're up to and what we're doing, and uh, any major lore-defining or storyline-defining things that one of us is implementing, we make sure everyone's kind of informed of and on board with, and... Uh, so like we might, ha I might have an idea of like, Hey, I want to do this thing with the story. And then, Oh, that ties into the RPG or that ties into the card game. And, uh, so if one person has an idea, another person can roll with it, knowing what, you know, each other are up to for the next year or two. Is there any way you can give us an example for a story thing that we've already seen in the fictions that affected the RPG? Um... It mostly goes the other direction, to okay. be honest. Uh, what fiction things would relate to the RPG? Well, Emerald Empire, I suppose, was was the biggest thing, right? Because Emerald Empire kind of defines Rokugan as it is at the start of the story, what the sort of, air quotes, status quo is. Um, and so a lot of that needed to make sure that it lined up with, as much as possible, uh, what we had already depicted in the stories. Yeah. Which... That book turned out to be a, a pretty big undertaking, <laughs> as you can probably imagine. Well, can you tell us a bit about how you got into L5R? So L5R, uh, as an IP, I was sort of tangentially aware of for quite a while um, because I'm, I've always been interested in and uh, at least somewhat involved as a fan in sort of the like tabletop game fantasy space. Um, but I never had time to get into it. I just, it was like, well, you know, I have school and I have magic and D and D and I have, um, the, the video games that I play with my friends and, and it just never quite, I, there was just never time to, uh, get into it, especially because it's so dense. There's so much lore for L5R that like, if you want to get uh, in, if you want to get involved in the IP, you kind of have to like dive in. Um, and at the time that I would have gotten into L5R, all of my friends were like wildly into Game of Thrones, as you can imagine. So that kind of took precedence for because social reasons. Um, so then when I uh, started uh, working with uh, Fantasy Flight Games, one of the first things that they wanted me to work on was uh, to support and learn from and assist uh, Katrina on the, the L5R story line, I suppose. Um, and also because I had been working with Eric Dahlman uh, as a playtester for the Star Wars LCG and as a player of the Star Wars LCG, uh, he and I had a relationship, so I also got to work with him on the LCG. Um, and so that was... And so that required that I become as knowledgeable about L5R as possible, as fast as possible. Uh, and just as I expected, as soon as I dived into it, I loved it. Um, and so it was mostly just a matter of like, how much can I learn? How fast can I learn? Uh, so that I can work with these people that, uh, you know, I'm here to work with. Um, and of course, uh, once I took over for the LCG and Katrina moved on, uh, 
to her new job, uh, that left the openings for me to be more involved in L5R in a more direct way. Okay. Uh, Go ahead, David. I was about to say, like, again, just hearing about the diving into the lore, the the fact that, again, like, one of the things that uh, Alex and I discussed is the lore on this is, it is it is a deep, deep lore. So, definitely can appreciate the, the falling in love with the game, which is, in many ways, I think sort of what this game does best is it makes people fall in love with it. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's because there's, like... As, as, as much as it can be a pain in the butt sometimes to be like, oh man, I sure missed this detail from 18 years ago that is important right now. Uh, but like that kind of expansive and also diverse world building is mm-hmm. what makes L5R really cool. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's something, there's some character, some clan, some family, some detail, something that I think almost anyone can connect with. It's a story that's being, that has been told for over 20 years by thousands of people. I know. Often and that's shows. huge. And it, and, and it shows for good and for bad. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were doing your deep dive, were there any parts that you got to like, I can't wait to reintroduce people to this aspect or any parts you're like, this has to go. Um, I'm not going to be as specific as maybe you would like because uh, I don't want to tell you what has to go for sure. Um, Because there's also a world in which I bring something back that we had off the table in a re-envisioned way. Um, what, What was I most excited about? So for me, what is really cool about Rokugan is... Um the the like the the tension between every element of it right you have a unified empire empire that serves an emperor and there is peace in this empire and there has been for a thousand years and yet also clans are constantly fighting with each other and it's a martial culture ruled by warriors and like um people are expected to fulfill their duty to their lord at all times with without question and yet everyone is human and so they have their own desires and needs um obviously that high level stuff hasn't changed and won't change um and is because it's just that's the heart of of rokugan um i think i think something that uh i'm excited to explore in a a somewhat more uh, involved and new way is uh, the supernatural elements of Rokugan. Um, the old version of the lore um, had more of a Tolkien-esque Western aesthetic to it of like, here's the good guys and here's the bad guys. Oh, yeah. Um, and getting to explore... And like, if you know anything about uh, Japanese mythology, which I'm sure you guys probably do... It's so bizarre. There's so much weird stuff that like people have imagined and uh, and told stories about. Like some of the stuff that we found when we were doing research for, uh, I say we, I mostly wasn't involved. Uh, it was mostly the the authors and the RPG team. 
when they were making the Shadowlands book, mm. we were like, of course we need to put this mm-hmm. weird yokai into this book because it's oh. so bizarre and cool. Um, and also the idea that magic comes from relationship rather than from sort of willpower, right? So a lot of, uh, especially modern Western fantasy superhero stuff is very much like my magical powers come from within me and I exert my will on the universe and, you know, I punch a fireball or whatever. Uh, Whereas with L5R, it's much more like, no, I don't have this power. This power is in the world and I need to convince the world to help me out because I have this positive relationship with them, with them, the Kami. Um, Like that kind of uh, magic and supernatural elements are the kind are kinds of they're new and they're interesting and I think that they make for really good stories. Uh, I know one of my favorite stories was uh, Robert Denton's uh, story about Asawa Tadaka and his uh, Shigenja duel. Mm-hmm. And it's one Repentance that Repentance does not come first. That's the one. Yeah. Uh, and when I uh, when I read that, I, I immediately sent it out to a lot of my friends that are still playing uh, here uh, the old the old game and haven't got as much into fiction. Uh, with the new oh, sure. Like, I don't, even if you're not going with the new lore, you need to read this just see like, this is how that relationship should be depicted. Yeah. I think a yeah. lot of that also came from uh, Denton's own faith. Uh, like he, um, he, does, he is, I believe, practicing Shinto follower. Oh, I did that, not know that. Yeah, and th- that's really I didn't th- either, but I can see it because he's very yeah. knowledgeable about the subject. Yes. So that, that affects a lot of how he wants to do it. So, what, are your, uh, what is your experience with playing RPGs? Uh, I've been playing RPGs since I was eight, maybe. Um, so the my first exposure to role playing games was actually uh, a game that none of you have heard of called Abante, and what, I'm what was quite it certain called? Abante. Oh yeah, that's, qu- that's something Wait. I haven't heard of. No, I, I, I okay. Heard, I was gonna like, say. I write game yeah. reviews uh, for like RPG reviews for Carpo Republic, so that's why I was like, I want to see, have I heard of this? But no, no I say that's no. genuinely a game I haven't heard of. And the reason that you haven't heard of it is because it only exists in Oakland, California. Uh, um, because there is a teacher out there who played RPGs D&D with her friends and whatever, um, and at the same time that she got somewhat disillusioned with Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition, and uh, academia, I think. Um, she had the craziest idea that, hey, maybe I could teach kids, you know, normal education stuff through RPGs. And so she, uh, I believe, still runs it as an after school slash summer program where kids go and they play the game. And it's, it's a homebrew system, which is the, why it, it has its own name. Um, it's obviously inspired heavily from D&D, but uh, it's a homebrew system, and, and her, her goals were to create a system that was was simple enough the kids could play, but also uh, taught them things like uh, civics and math and uh, interpersonal relationships and, um, you know, life skills, uh, while also being, let's play games in a fantasy world. Um and so I, pl- I started with that as like a, hey, 
Tyler plays games. Maybe this is a thing that he'll like. And of course, I loved it. Um, and I got a bunch of my friends into it. And so we were playing. Uh, we played that for several years. Uh, and then we sort of outgrew it and went to college or went to. Yeah, we outgrew it when we went to high school. Um, and then around the end of high school, my friends got super into D&D. So then we played a bunch of D&D. And then uh, around that time, I. Because in high school, I was super into um, HP Lovecraft. So I got into Call of Cthulhu, the role playing game. Um, and wrote a couple adventures for that. Oh, nice! Uh, in college, and not published ones, but okay. eh, maybe one, maybe someday. Um, and then, so I've been playing, and then uh, it's mostly been D and D, of course, because that's what is easiest to get people into, because there's a lot of familiarity with it. Um, and I think Fifth Edition D and D is the it's the first D and D that I would say is actively a good version of D and D. I, I have referred to Fifth Edition as D and D, the greatest hits album. <laughs> yes, that's a reasonable. That is a reasonable perspective. Um, so I've been playing RPGs a lot. I think my preferred uh, games would be more in the Call of Cthulhu style. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily that system because it, for better or for worse, does feel a little bit dated. Um, are but you like- familiar with? Uh, are you familiar with the the Secret World IP at all? It's an MMORPG. Yes. No of it. I okay. I may have played that game. It is. That's <laughs> if that were a tabletop game, that would be my favorite game. Um, for I would, I would, I would spend money on that game. I would write reviews of that game. I would love that game. I I really did like. I got to play. Uh, I got I I got to play in the I got to play like the beta of Secret World because. <laughs> PAX East. It was one of the places where you could get oh, yeah. this for it. So yeah, yep, that was. That right. I, it's a, I, I loved that world. Uh, so for those who aren't familiar with the IP, it's an MMORPG where the conceit is uh, all of. It's set in modern day Earth, and the conceit is that all of the myths, leg- myths, legends, conspiracy theories, everything is true. Um, and so you play as a member of a secret society, whether it's the Illuminati or the Templars or the Dragon, um, <laughs> and. Uh, you're, you know, basically trying to keep the secret world secret while also preventing global catastrophe because it's a very Lovecraftian sort of there's these uh, great old one analogs that are slowly waking up and, you know, causing havoc or whatever. Uh, modern day uh, fantasy or modern day sci-fi or whatever the thin line they're in. They're, it's generally between. called like urban fantasy these days. Sure. Let's call it urban fantasy. That's a genre that I really like. So. Um, that's what I would play. <laughs> uh, obviously, I uh, have played a little bit of the L5R role-playing game, but not a ton, and mostly just because, like, I don't have time. <laughs> well, they, they keep you busy. So when you are working on uh, the RPG, it sounds like you're doing mostly storyline uh, for it rather than uh, mechanics. Uh, how do you go about uh, developing those storylines? Are there big meetings? Do you just come in one day? It's like, guys, I've got it. <laughs> uh, so lately, the storyline, um, uh, the, the, the plot storyline, has mostly been me figuring out what I want to do uh, with where the story is headed next. And then I sit down with the other uh, L5R people, and I'm like, hey, this is what I want to do. And they make sure that I'm not like totally off my rocker. Um and oftentimes they come up with like really, really compelling details that shape 
that that much better that either shift the narrative or shift you know fill it out way better um i can't give you any specifics because uh they haven't come out yet but ask me in a, in a few months and then uh, maybe i will um you need to save notes but, so, so that years later you can just publish like the, the annotated fictions uh, oh boy that's that's dangerous road, that's man. dangerous yeah <laughs> also i don't know if you're aware but like there's a lot of fictions already and there's going to be a lot more next year. So like pretty soon, like there's going to be too much for anyone to be able to go through, you know, annotated stuff. I guess if it was like two years later and we were only focusing on the first scroll or something, um, um, I'm putting in, I, I actually did this measure last year around this time because I wrote, wrote about it in one of my articles. Um, we had not including the novella cause this was just after, um, Sword in the Spirits was released, mm-hmm. the equivalent word count of fiction as A Game of Thrones, the first novel of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, and, that checks out. And we're about halfway through, I'd say, A Clash of Kings right now. I mean, and if you would consider, like, take a, the, the first scroll, for example, that's yeah. just corset and pre-release fictions. That is not the Imperial Cycle, and that is... Uh, yeah. 130 pages maybe i don't know word count off the top of my head because it's all formatted for novella size it's a novella so if you take that and you're like okay every cycle is a novella plus we have our other novellas we're on like what eight novellas now yep (laughs) it's a lot Mm -hmm. i know a lot of the rpg players who uh, aren't in the cards they appreciate that the switch to publishing the fictions online um so they're not scrounging to find uh someone to borrow the sheets from to be honest, um, that was a transition that we were very happy to make internally, but then because of a lot of things that sort of lined up uh, on, uh, awkwardly timeline-wise, um, it meant there was this weird transition period between the first two cycles when we're publishing uh, stories in the fi- in the packs and also on online to um, the third cycle where. We still kind of are expecting it, the stories to be with the packs, but they're online, so they don't have to. So, like, what's the best way to to do this to uh, cycles four and five, which, um, as you'll see, uh, hopefully the release of fictions and card content should line up much better than they did this year. One of those things that I keep telling people in the community is you got to understand this game may seem old, but it's still pretty young. There's there's still a learning curve on how to best get every single piece of this game out there. And and I'd like to think that we're headed in a good direction. Things are getting better. So, yeah, and it it has helped that. uh, I think we've internally gotten better at working together, all of the various pieces, Um so hopefully you should see some of that. Of course, now that I say that, there's going to be some like catastrophic uh, complication that shows up, and we have to, you know, shift a bunch of stuff at the last minute. And I'm going to look like a fool, but that's the plan. <laughs> the usual best laid plans of mice and and the scorpion clan. The usual complication back in the old days was uh, player decisions in the storyline. I've had fewer of those, but we've definitely seen the impact that they've had with things like. Uh, the Kikumatsuri uh, Mishoto decision has just really come to bear. Um, Oops. 
I I would not call that an oops. You know what you did. Oh, me neither. Oh, I know what I did. (laughs) The interesting thing is um, people – I've seen in a couple of places people be somewhat skeptical of like, yeah, but like how much did it really matter? Was this the story they were going to tell all along? And it's like, no, no, no. You don't understand. Like an entire trajectory of the storyline would be different if that choice had gone differently. And it's just, and it's so different that you can't even see the differences. Just a completely different world. So, do you see the uh, the players having additional influence uh, on the storyline going forward? I don't think anybody's asking to go back to the old system where every tournament was a decision. <laughs> oh my god! And every skirmish pod at Gen Con was a decision. Oh god, no! Are you for real? I'm not joking. That's bananas. That is that will, bananas. No. There, um, <laughs> there will be more story involvement in 2020 than there was in 2019, and there will be more story involvement in 2019 than in 2018. Um, I, I, think, I think it's been the right decision to do it slowly and just get acclimated at a time. Because uh, it, well, it's easy other, to add more, but it's hard to roll things back. And the other thing is, uh, I don't think... Most people would not be aware of how many moving parts there are behind the scenes on a single storyline choice. Um, like, it's very easy for us to do one story choice a year. It's still kind of easy-ish to do two story choices a year. Once you're at, like, three or four story choices a year, uh, especially if they're at major events, um, which, of course, is where you want them. Uh, things start to get a lot more complicated because like a story choice might directly impact another story choice. And we're also, you know, plotting out the storyline much farther ahead than the fans are. So like if I'm thinking about what the story is going to be in 2020 and it's, and it is directly dependent on the three story choices in 2019, then like I kind of can't. Um, and on the one hand, you could say, well, that's fine. Just write the story as it happens. And on the other hand, it's like, that's fine. But then you don't get the like really rich uh, LCG or RPG involvement with the storyline as it's happening. You don't get uh, cards that directly reference the story that comes out alongside the card. Or you don't get um, a uh, book that that matches thematically what's going on in the story at the time that it comes out. You don't get... Uh, I mean, you don't get um, pack titles that that yeah. can, that are Im- directly relevant to people following the storyline because that stuff has to get planned out far enough in advance. And so, like, a lot of things are adjusted by the story choices um, a lot more than people think, probably. But the key is we have to be very judicious about which choices we offer and when we offer them and how we offer them. Because also, let's not even talk about the fact that it's one thing for me to just say, hey guys, let's have a story choice here. And it's another thing for me to say, hey guys, let's have a story choice here. All right, organized play, let's make sure you guys know what you're doing. Let's make sure this is actually something we can do. Uh, Let's make sure the story group is uh, planning for it, you know, all of the outcomes of the the story choice, etc., that kind of thing. As somebody who got to see and interact with the interactive storyline under the AEG days, both prior to when it got quote-unquote bad, and when it got to the full-blown crazy, and then when it sort of reeled itself back in, and then now, then I get the sale. Anyways, I've seen a lot of this. Um, 
I definitely think what FFG is doing is is the smart way and the most effective way to keep the promise of L5R, which is you, the players, this is as much your story as it is our story, while still keeping those choices meaningful, but successful as a business. Because, as you said, there's just a turnaround time, and like things need to be planned years in advance, because that's just the speed of business. Well, and, and it's also worth talking about regardless of the bit the business stuff there's a, a certain point at which too many story decisions means each of them is less relevant right exactly. i would much rather give i would much rather give the players four very important story choices a year or three very important story choices a year uh than give them uh, 15 that are just kind of like whatever exactly <laughs> which is uh, one last question on the topic, uh, then I, I do want to go on. Uh, so we, we could we literally could talk about this all day. Uh, but <laughs> really. Would you ever consider something to make uh, story choices prevalent but without dominating it, like, such as give, instead of giving a story choice uh, to the winner of big events, but giving a vote that then gets tabulated up at winner court? Uh, it's certainly been considered. Um it's it's hard to get a sense of uh, how much players prefer because like a certain um, allure appeal of the story choices I I think is that they are tied to events right like it it there's a certain allure to like no no, no I went to this specific event and I got to be involved in this specific choice um, this wasn't something that just sort of everyone got to chip into and in the uh, some accumulation of of our votes did it. There is space for that, but uh, I do think that at a, at a certain point, players want to feel personally involved, and the the wider you spread your net, both person-wise and time-wise, um, I think the time-wise is more important. Um, the wider you spread your net, the less personal the choice ends up feeling. Um, even if it's a vote between 25 people, uh, like at the UK Games Expo this past year, each of those 25 people are very distinctly aware of how meaningful their vote was um, because they know that there was just 25 of them and they were got to do it because they were at that event at that time. And that makes the memory of that event special. Um, if I just win a story vote card or something um, at some Kote, I'm not going to remember that Kote as being special. Yeah, it's a fair point. And, and again, it's the prestige and the fact that, like, the fact that Kikita Kaizen had his storyline now that he's in the Foxlands, that's because somebody won a tournament. And that is, and like, everything else can change in the game, that won't. Yes, and, and, and also, uh, nope, that's it. Whatever thought I had, it's gone. <laughs> I, I, I would like to talk more about this, but uh, I want to, do want to move on to the next topic. Um, th this is one that is a bit more um, controversial in L5R, so I, first off, I want to thank you, Tyler, for being willing to talk about it. And this is the area of culture and cultural depiction in L5R. Uh, and in the history of L5R, this has definitely had some very problematic aspects. And I'm aware that FFG has done a lot more um, to promote a healthy depiction of, uh, of different Asian cultures uh, that has happened in the past, such as things like hiring cultural consultants. 
Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what FFG is doing to make sure that they're depicting uh, Asian cultures respectfully? Uh, yeah, I can talk about that. Um, the important thing for us is that uh, because we, because both we as the creators and also in most cases uh, the consumers, the players, are not Asian, we want to make sure that everything is treated with the appropriate level of respect. Um, we don't want to try to tell Asian stories uh, in the same style that an uh, Asian storyteller would, right? Even though that's the IP, even though that's the the, the set dressing, um, the stories that we're telling need to be authentic to the experiences that we can uh, that we can draw from. I guess um, we don't want to try to tell a story in a way that isn't authentic because we're trying to emulate someone else's culture. Um, even though we acknowledge that like, yes, this is a samurai setting and this is uh, a setting that is heavily based on uh, Japan and China and Korea and, and a lot of other uh, very, very relevant real world cultures. Would, would even I- down to the, oh, I was just going to say, even down to the point of like Japanese language gets used in L5R, uh, and while we want Rokugan to be distinct from Japanese culture, uh, we there's there's a certain point at which we have to acknowledge that it's there and uh, make sure that everyone is, and that includes the players, uh, is treating it as respectfully as possible. Certainly a lot of the uh, supernatural elements can tie into this. We want to draw from the mythology because it's cool and we want to be respectful of it. That's why we use uh, higher um, cultural consultants for uh, to make sure that we're doing it as respectfully as we can. Um, uh, but something that we're doing is trying to draw more... We're both trying to draw more generally, um, so you'll see more... Chinese influence, more Korean influence, more Mongolian influence um, in Rokugan than you would in if this were just set in Japan. Um, and at the same time, we want to expand the world so that this isn't just Japan world. This is, you know, it's all it's its own setting, right? You have Rokugan, which maybe has a certain flavor, but then you have the Burning Sands, which is equally drawn from real world cultures and also its own thing. Um, you have uh, other cultural, other, I guess, nationalities, I guess, outside of Rokugan that uh, draw from uh, Chinese influences or draw from Korean influences. Uh, of course, you have the Ivory Kingdoms, um, and you're going to get to see more of the Ivory Kingdoms soon. Um, we want this to not just be, this is the Japan setting, or even just this is the East Asia setting, uh, we want Rokugan to be its own place with its own characteristics. And while a lot of them very heavily draw from real world cultures, uh, we're drawing from lots of real world cultures in as many ways as we can so that it's not just the one. Right. Does that make sense? I, I, I think so. 
Yeah, again, I'm I'm following what you're what, what you're saying. It's sort of the it is always the challenge of when you're creating fantasy is that we draw from touchstones and a shared dialogue and a shared um, vocabulary of of certain icons, images, things like that. You can do a whole like cultural studies thing, but and Legend of the Five Rings undoubtedly drew from a very specific um, cultural touchstone, very specific language, basically, yeah. uh, of, of images and and certain things that were themselves problematic, yes, at the time, and still are in many ways, but it has had so much time to grow and improve, and it, it is a process of improvement. Yeah, and um, the other thing is that because, like, of course, the reason that this matters at all and the reason that this is worth even trying is because, like, a lot of us that uh, – all of us that work on the IP are – we think that we think that Asian culture is cool and we want to celebrate it, right? Yeah. And – but, of course, the line between celebrating and appropriating is very thin, so we need to be aware of that and acknowledge that in as many ways as we can, right? And sometimes that's very, very explicit. Like, we have sidebars in almost every RPG book, if not actually every RPG book, where we say, listen, this is directly based on a real-world culture. Here are ways that you can be respectful of it, because what we don't want is for people to accidentally uh, say or do hurtful things because they weren't aware of the deep cultural and in some cases for a lot of people, probably personal relevance um, like, that the IP has on that point. Like one of the things I want to want to call out about that was having an entire sidebar about Burkuman in the RPG was a major step forward in depictions of a real life ethnic group in Japan that were being described in terms that while yes, technically correct were very problematic very loaded and very discriminatory yeah um and like uh as we um as we receive feedback we're absolutely like doing everything that we can to improve our process and improve what we make because like uh everything that a lot of the criticisms that we receive or a lot of the feedback that we get is valid and we want to improve what we uh, create both culturally and also just making a cool game. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is uh, that I just want to mention before we move on, if we're moving on is that uh, I don't know if you're aware, but L5R is a very trope heavy setting. Um, As most RPGs are. Yeah, but like, no, yeah, no, like most RPGs are. You're right. Um, the difference is these are like, not always our tropes. Right, and that's the thing. Is the thing uh, is that tropes live in this sort of gray area of being very close to um, stereotypes, mm. and one way that we want to detropify the setting, if you will, um, and people have probably picked up on this, 
is by making the families and the clans less one note, right? Uh, it's all well and good to say the Kakita are all Sherlock Holmes, but if they were drawn from some uh, specific uh, Japanese... What did I say? Uh, did I not say Kitsuki? said Kakita and not the Kitsuki. Oh, yes, my bad. Uh, that's what happens when you have two dueling clans with K fans. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you got two dragon players here. Oh, like, there, there's just one. Never, <laughs> never, ever ask me about the Caillou and the Kuni. I will get them wrong almost every time. Um, the uh, Anyway, my point is, um, if you're drawing from a trope that is not from your own culture, it's very, very easy for it to become a stereotype. Mm. And so the way that you make it not that is by making it not a trope, by making the families diverse, making the clans diverse, even though they still have their sort of cooks, their identifying characteristics. Um, not every, uh, uh, um, so, Not every Katsuki is going to act like... I was going to try to see if I could come up with another example, but I'm just going to stick with Katsuki. Um, not every Katsuki is going to be uh, all about the, like, hard logic and investigation. Um, not every Kakita is going to be about perfection and dueling, right? Or whatever. Um, if you can show that each... Even though they have their hooks the families themselves are internally diverse, you get the sense that any uh, any attribute that could be a stereotype is just that character, not the whole setting. Yeah. I think we can move on, but I just I do want to thank you for being willing to talk with us on the record about this. Yeah. yeah. It, it is a challenging topic, and the fact that you're even willing to talk about it is... Thank you, as a member of this community, who has who has held the community to to the flame on this issue. Thank you well, for being stepping forward and doing this. Uh, as thorny as the subject may be, it's something that we take very seriously and we think about a lot. And we are um, any ways in which we can improve uh, on future products and projects. Um, we are doing everything that we can to do so. Um, and a lot of times that's, we have a thing and we get feedback and then the next time the thing gets visited or discussed, uh, we incorporate that feedback, but that might not happen for another year or two, right? Yeah. After we get the feedback because of usual development times. And, and also just that like, we have a priority of we want to get to this thing and then we want to get to this thing and then we want to get to this thing. And if the third thing is the thing that we got feedback on, like, it may be three years because, you know, we want to explore the whole world and not keep retouching the same part of the world yeah. or whatever. But let's, let's move on to a lighter topic now. And I know, that, <laughs> I know your topic is limited, so we're going to try and go through these a little bit quickly so we have time to at least get through a few listener questions. Uh, in the future, oh, right, are, are there any areas of the setting that you're particularly looking forward to exploring? It's a little bit, uh, uh, maybe it's a little bit obvious right now, considering what our next novella is. Uh, but I've always found the monastic traditions of Rokugan to be interesting. Mm. And, uh, 
the fact, and and I can say that a novella starring Togashi Kazue is all about the Togashi monastic traditions, and I'm very excited for that uh, because I am very impressed by and excited by what we were able to explore and develop in that novella. Um, what else am I most interested? In? Honestly, uh, I'm interested in seeing what what all of our characters do next. That's the the honest answer is I really I think that L5R has some incredible characters and uh, they're all very fraught with conflicts with one another and themselves and I think that the emotional growth and challenges that a lot of them are inevitably going to have to do to get out of the holes that they're in uh, is going to be very fun and exciting. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. For two questions we always ask all of our guests. Do you have a favorite type of character <laughs> to play in the RPG, and do you have a favorite house rule for the RPG? Uh, favorite type of character? Um, someone who is in the wrong school. I think that's my that's my hook. Uh, the first L5R character I played was a... Agasha Bushi, who had studied with the Shiba, but really she just wanted to be a Togashi monk. Um, was see. her so, name yeah. Agasha Taiko by any Maybe. Chance. It might have been. <laughs> um, then, and, uh, and then another character that I played was a deer clan who uh, was very... Um, enthusiastic about everything but uh she was supposed to be a shinobi so like being enthusiastic and sort of a little bumbly was maybe not the best for being sneaky there was an old there was a thread on the old ag forums called the different school challenge and the goal was to give you a family and a completely different school and you had to come with the backstory for the character about how the heck this happened is yeah it's a great exercise i recommend to all players <laughs> and do you have any favorite house rules for the RPG? Uh, honestly, no, because I am not. I'm. I've come up with a lot of house rules in my day, but I'm not familiar enough. Sort of in the in my bones, I don't have the L5R mechanics in my bones yet, so I can't. I don't want to start dealing with house rules. Because right. you, you kind of got to know the system before you start adding house rules to it, because you don't want your house rule to like make it worse. <laughs> and with that, it is time for listener questions. Dun, da, da, da. Right. Uh, uh, we got a lot of questions uh, for Tyler, and just due to time, we're not going to go through all of them. So we're just going to try to do some uh, some hits for the ones that we've identified as uh, the shorter answers. So, our first question comes from Jeannie Calabar. Will there be any RPG things that we record this year? Uh, I cannot speak to the OP team um, because I haven't checked in with them about it yet, but uh, I want there to be, and I know that they intend to or want to, and it's just a matter of logistically making it happen, not a matter of we don't want to. Um, certainly any way that I can help make that happen, I will. <laughs> Our next question comes from Ryan McCormack. Do you see RPG players having as great an impact in storyline decisions as LCG players? 
And if so, what are the mechanics FFG intends to use for that? We talked about storyline decisions in general, so I think we just focus on the RPG side of things. Uh, so there's three questions in here, so I'll answer all three of them. Uh, the first one is, do the RPG players have as great an impact as LCG players? And the answer is no. Um, and we'll get to that well, in a minute. Right to the, point. the second question is, the second question is, uh, do I see RPG player as having a meaningful impact? And um, while different people will have different interpretations of the word meaningful, the answer to that question is yes. I do want RPG players to be involved in the ongoing storyline. Um, and the third question is, what are the mechanics I, that we want to use? And the answer to that question is, that's why the RPG players can't have as great an impact, right? Because uh, it's very easy to determine uh, storyline decisions at an LCG tournament because the game has a built-in way to uh, minimize the playing field until there's only one or a small handful of people making a decision. Um, with an RPG, that doesn't exist. Also, the very nature of an RPG requires that the RPG exists, like, the same RPG module exists in, like, ten worlds at once because they all went differently or whatever. Um, and we did a little bit of that in the context in uh, Wedding at Kyoto Castle and The Highwayman. Surprise. Um, but uh, it's, it's just so much harder to get RPG involvement in the ongoing storyline um, just because it's hard to come up with easy ways to do it. Um, Gen Con so far has just been the easiest way to have events that people can have results that we can then take note of. Our next question comes from uh, Ray Dent. Are there any events planned for the story that you are really keen for? Yes. Um... Uh, there's going to be some short stories happening between now and Winter Court that are going to be pretty, uh, oh boy, oh boy, bombastic is maybe the word? Looking forward. Problematic? Problematic is maybe the word? <laughs> I guess that depends on your point of view. <laughs> Hopefully problematic in a good way. Problematic for the people involved. <laughs> Let's say dramatic. How's that? Yeah, we'll go with that. Uh, David, do you want to get the, uh, the next three? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I know a lot of people ask, what's your favorite great clan? What's your favorite minor clan? And um, why? Minor clans are interesting because uh, they're, 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 they're somewhere between, like, families with they're, – they're, they're somewhere between a family within a great clan and also a great clan, right? Um they have their sh they have their shtick, but they're diverse enough to warrant their own clan, and they do in mo in, in many cases more than one thing. Um, I would say I'm I'm going to go with the wasp today. So it, it, it depends on when you ask me. I'm going to go with the wasp today uh, because I think that archery and rokugan doesn't get enough. Um, enough no you know what uh i take it back Mant uh the mantis clan um, okay. maybe that doesn't count because they're so close to a major clan um but the idea of ambitious pirate i mean pirates are cool ambitious pirates are cool uh we have developed some of the characters from the mantis clan in a cool way um 
I'm particularly fond of Kudaka. Uh, and um, I think that, so my point with the Wasp plan was going to be that archery is cool and we don't get to see enough archery, uh, but uh, pirates are also archers, so they get to fit the bill. Cool. Good job. Go Mantis, you did it. Well, I'm right. sure a lot of people are going to either love or hate me for that. My, my <laughs> former roommate, the guy who actually taught me the, the old CCG, was messaging me right before this saying, do, do you know if the Wasp are in new 5R? And like, uh, they they exist. Yeah. I was like, yep. I'll they, they, they have, about it. So you just made they have a castle. Happy. They have a castle. They have one castle. And yeah. you know, they're on the map. People, <laughs> they're on the map. Uh, another one. Um, for personal reasons, what is your opinion about and uh, everyone's favorite teleporting telepathic snake elves, aka the Naga? Um, they are awesome. Uh, it's the, an acceptable answer. Yeah, it's an acceptable answer. Um, the uh, we we haven't really seen much of them yet, um, and we have not gotten to see anywhere near as much as I would like of them, um, simply because they're not an easy <laughs> group to fit into the ongoing fiction storyline, the plot, yeah. um, which makes them ripe for RPG content. Mm. which is good because they may get referenced in a book coming up. Um, but even that does not have as much development of them as I would like because they're really cool. And, and they're weird, and they're super weird. They're super weird, and that's what's awesome about them, yeah. <laughs> um, and they are what hooked me, really, in many ways. So, um, Also, um, there is a long history of alternate versions of L5R. Things like Rokugan 2000, Empire of the Emerald Stars, Iron Empire, things like that. Everyone's um, favorite Imperial Histories too. Oh yeah, my ongoing joke of of L5R, the baseball episode, um, because they're. I mean, I'm I'm a weeb. I know my I know my references. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, like if there was like a slice of life high school Rokugan, I'd watch that. <laughs> Rokugan 90210 by Rich Wolf. I highly recommend reading it. I, oh, I, yeah, I think no. somebody actually did a video of like of Rokugan High School for an online video contest during the Race for the Throne. Yep. I mean, that's also one of the default uh, like fan uh, alternate spin-off parody things, right? Like yes. I've seen I've seen High School Magic, I've seen High School Halo, I've seen High School uh, I guess D&D doesn't count, but like um I've seen high school Tolkien a lot. Like everybody, everybody has their high school oh, yeah. has their or their musical episode. Everybody has a musical episode. So, anyways, which oh, one is wow. your favorite? And if you had to create one on the spot, what it would it be? So I had a predetermined answer for that, but now it's musical Rokugan. That's my new favorite. <laughs> Rokugan the musical, in with all the like musical theater tropes, all of them. So I think this needs, I want to, see I think this needs to be an official FFG L5R LARP at Gen Con next year. <laughs> oh, God. I know Don't people will sign up for it. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. Also excited by. I don't know. <laughs> right. uh, we've got time for one more. And I actually want to go back to Jeannie Calabar, because this is a long answer question. Um, but this, this was a big deal to her and to a lot of other players. Can you talk about the change in the Asahina origin story in Courts of Stone, and why, if it was done intentionally, uh, was it done? So, in the previous lore, 
Kiriko intercepted, intercepted Asahima's fires with her body to shield the villagers, and her sacrifice shamed him, stopping the assault. Well, in Courts of Stone, uh, he stops basically because she, he sees her looking sad. Um, so it does change the character and the story. Uh, is there a reason the decision was made? Uh, short answer, yes. Long answer, it's a story. And I guess I'll tell it. So this is probably a good place to end because it's kind of an example of how things go internally a little bit. Um, so in so I said Emerald Empire was a big uh, project that was large in scope and had many, um, many, 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 many hands in it. Um, the many, many, many hands in it meant that when the Asahina origin story was written in that, uh, you might remember the victory with no strike. Um, it was written, but the wrong people looked at it at the wrong times, and it ended up with the wrong names attached to it, which meant that the victory with no strike was no longer the Asahina origin which is fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. We've changed lots of things about the setting. But what that means is that uh, when it came time to do the Asahina origin story for Courts of Stone, I wanted it to be a little bit more different. Um, and so I re reimagined the same basic plot elements, uh, rewrote that story uh, in sort of a summary form, and then it got trimmed down for space and... Uh, went through a few more editing passes and ended up being much more abridged than it originally was. And a lot of the important context was removed. Now that's not to say that, uh, that's, it's just one of those things that happens when you're making books that have limited space. Right. And while I am sad that it ended up in the form that it did, um, this, I still think that the story that was originally written for it is strong and I want to tell that story again someday. Uh, but I am absolutely aware of how it came across in its final form. Well, thank you for giving us the uh, peek behind the scenes there. I know, I know yeah. uh, a lot of players will at least be happy to know why things happen like that. Yeah. And like, uh, that happens a lot more than you would think that things change because of space reasons um usually it's just that you don't get to see as much which like yeah sucks but also means that we have cool stuff to show you later um that's yeah looking forward to it and with that we are going to uh our outro uh tyler is there anything you would like to plug anybody you'd like to give a shout out to uh i would like to give a shout out to the hardworking uh, writers that we uh, that do such a great job for us. Um, nothing that we do with the with L5R could exist, let alone be this good without the um, attention and um, passion and work that a lot and time that a lot of our authors put in. Uh, and they're doing an incredible job, and I can't wait to keep working with them and keep uh, making L5R great. The rest of us are delighted to keep reading them. Uh, mm. David, is Indeed. there anything that you would like to uh, plug or mention? 
Uh, well, I, I will, of course, plug myself, uh, CardboardRepublic.com, um, Dave of the Five Rings. You only read one article a month about Legend of the Five Rings. I try to be the one that you can read and still keep up to date. Um, also, I'd like to give a shout out to the New England L5R greater community, both L5R podcast, the Meek Informant, Dicer Death, um, all of those people out that way. It's a great community. They're pretty awesome. They're really active in the podcasting space. So respect to that. Um, also, thank you for having me on this show. Um, definitely want to, I means a lot. And thank you, Tyler, for actually coming onto the show and bouncing some questions off of. Um, I, and I, oh, I was just going to say, I appreciate that you guys limited me to only an hour because otherwise I'd be here for like three. <laughs> if you want to keep going, we can keep going. No, no, no. It's better for everyone involved. <laughs> well, right. Thank you for making the time to speak to us. Listen, we really appreciate it. I've learned to Robert Denton talk. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't about to reference the last po- province podcast, but oh my. I love that podcast, but man, he talks. Yeah. He, he talks until they start <laughs> yeah. talking about war, and you, you can very pointedly hear where he goes quiet. And I'm like, oh, there's an NDA there. <laughs> Well, thank you both again. Uh, David, thank you for joining the last minute. Tyler, thank you for uh, just for openness and to talk with us and make the time. We'll see you all soon. Thank you, Rokugan. Stay classy. Bye-bye now.